0: From the Preservation Maryland Studios in the Historic Podcast District of Baltimore, this is PreserveCast. Few names are as synonymous with Civil War battlefields as the bloody cornfield. It conjures up visions of harrowing bloodshed and the tragedy of fratricidal combat. Yet for over 150 years, the story of this struggle has been difficult to track. The sway of battle back and forth over David R. Miller's cornfield was a confusing melee of destruction. To help interpret this pivotal story, historian and author David A. Welker has produced a detailed study of this pivotal moment in American history, which captures the reader and makes the compelling case for the national significance of these 20-plus acres of Maryland soil. On this week's PreserveCast, we're taking a trip back to Sharpsburg, Maryland on the morning of September 17th, 1862, and descending into the bloody cornfield. Before we start this week's episode, I really want to thank you for listening, and I want to ask for your help. PreserveCast is powered by Preservation Maryland, a nonprofit organization that depends on member contributions to fund its work. This podcast receives no government support and currently has no major funder support. Its budget is entirely dependent on listener contributions. I'm hoping you'll consider making a quick gift to help support this podcast, which is bringing important preservation stories to thousands of listeners around the country. Think of us as your Preservation Netflix. Any amount helps, and you can make a quick online donation by going to PreserveCast.org and clicking the Donate Now button in the upper right-hand corner. We'd greatly appreciate it. Now, let's get preserving. David A. Welker is the author of the recently released The Cornfield, Antietam's Bloody Turning Point. Previous publications include Tempest at Ox Hill, The Battle of Chantilly, and A Keystone Rebel, The Civil War Diary of Joseph Gary. He currently serves as a historian and military analyst with the U.S. government, a post he's held for over 35 years. He holds a master's degree in international affairs from American University and a bachelor's degree in history and political science from Westminster College in Pennsylvania. He currently lives in Centerville, Virginia, with his wife. This is Nick Redding. You're listening to PreserveCast. And today we're joined by David Welker, a historian who has recently published a great new volume on Antietam Civil War history, in particular the cornfield at Antietam. David, it's a pleasure to have you with us here today in Preserve Cast. I'd love to talk about this book and, and how you came to it and what you found in, in writing it. But you clearly have a real passion for history, especially Civil War history. So, what was your sort of path to this career in, in working in history?
1: Yeah, so you know, my love of history, I think, is is innate. I remember as a child looking at my father's history books, especially the you know American Heritage Civil War history book, uh, and just looking through the pictures and reading it, not understanding it, but it, it developed a, a love of the Civil War and American history when I was a child. Uh, when I uh, started in university, I uh, graduated with a degree in history and political science, and went, uh, and then uh, went on to pursue a, a, a master's in international affairs, and I began working for the government as a military analyst. And so I began to, uh, when I was studying modern foreign affairs and modern militaries, began to go back to my original love and to develop a a means for expressing that. I did a lot of writing at work. I did a lot of writing, uh, obviously, in college. And so I decided to combine my passions and began... Uh, taking the research I was doing in my spare time and beginning to, to write. And that led to my, uh, my career now, um, sort of second career as, uh, as a historian. I've worked for the government now as a military analyst for, uh, for 35 years. I'm now a professional historian with the U.S. government. So transitioned from being an analyst to a historian full time, uh, which is a real blessing for me. And, and I love that.
0: And so you've tackled a, a pretty big topic, given so much that has already been written about Antietam. It's a, it's a bold decision to take on the cornfield, perhaps one of the most iconic pieces of land in all of American history. So what in particular led you to take that project on? Was there just not enough out there about it? You wanted to learn more about it, and then that sort of became the impetus for writing it? How do you decide to take on that project?
1: Yeah, it was a little of of both. Uh, so I um, obviously had read several books about Antietam uh, just on my own before this project ever started. What really generated it was again through through work. Uh, I had picked up a series of staff running programs that once had been led by uh, by retirees, and during the the government budget cuts in the nineteen nineties. Uh, I was scheduled to go to Gettysburg. My staff first staff ride as a participant, and they canceled it because they cut the budget for that program. So I stepped in and said, "You know, I could do this if I can get a little bit of work time to develop the program." So I did. Uh, I then expanded it to Antietam, Manassas, and a few other battlefields in the Washington D.C. area. And as I was researching Antietam. The one glaring hole in my own knowledge was the actions in the cornfield. There was lots of description of the action of Burnside Bridge or the the sunken road or the West Woods. But the back and forth in the cornfield was often the best that I could get. And it frustrated me. And I remember asking... Uh, uh, some historians offline about it, and they said, "Yeah, nobody really knows, and somebody should do a project like that." But I don't have time to do it myself. And I thought, "Well, here's a good opportunity." So I began working on it. Actually, started working on it uh, after my my second book on the Battle of Chantilly Ox Hill was was published. Uh, set it aside. My kids got into you know Boy Scouts and marching band and soccer and all that stuff. And, and uh, so I kind of set it aside and worked slowly. And then once they started back in college, picked it up again. So <clears throat> that um, that project was, uh, was partly an effort to understand um, what happened, the back and forth of who advanced, who defended, why did particular attacks or defenses fail. Uh, and as, as I began doing the research, it, it just uh, became more and more engaging as I struggled with this. You're absolutely right. Antietam is a, a well-known and well-loved battle. There are lots and lots of people who have done some terrific uh, work and continue doing some terrific work on that battle. Um, but I, I felt that it was an opportunity to, to dig deeper into this place that... Uh, as I known in the book, you know, there are some spots that are otherwise common patches of ground that become uh, iconic American places of, of our history. And Miller's Cornfield was uh, is certainly one of those. And, and I hope that now you know, I, I brought uh, an ability to folks to be able to understand you, what happened and a bit about why did those events unfold.
0: Right. And so, you know, I think maybe taking a step back here for a second for someone who's listening who, uh, you know, isn't hasn't been to Maryland or hasn't visited Antietam or perhaps isn't even listening in the United States, could you maybe paint us a picture of the landscape itself? Like what would a visitor find? and then maybe we'll talk specifically about the cornfield, but let's talk about Antietam and and Sharpsburg, Maryland as a place. I mean, obviously you've probably spent some time there given how much you've written about it. Um, so tell us about what, how, how would you describe that place?
1: So Antietam and the the ground around Sharpsburg is just, it's beautiful Western Maryland landscape. Uh, it's, It's been preserved, and uh, even today, you can experience that ground much like the the soldiers did. Uh, If you are standing on the ground north of of Sharpsburg, and Sharpsburg, Maryland, continues to be a a small, rural town. It's preserved that character. Obviously, it's grown a bit since the Civil War, but nothing like uh, Frederick or... Uh, some other towns in western Maryland, Hagerstown, that have grown considerably since the war. It retains that rural charm. North of it, largely of course because of the National Park Service, the preservation of the field, but also because of that rural character, the ground retains that original sense. Uh, It was farmed by some of the descendants of the original Owners of the land during the war, um, even when I began my research on, um, on the cornfield, some of those lands were owned by farmers and they continued to plant uh, soybeans and you know, modern uh, crops in those, those fields. Um, it, it's, it's rolling ground and uh, surrounded by woodlots, and it's that combination of, uh, of woodlot and open rolling ground that makes Antietam uh, such a, um, on the one hand, normal. If you could go a few miles around Antietam, and you'd see essentially the same kind of rolling terrain and and woodlots. And yet, this particular ground is, is special in and of itself.
0: And so, yeah, I mean, tell us about the cornfield. So, you know, we've been talking about it a little bit and we get the sense for the rolling ground, which it really is. And if you ever walk Antietam, and I encourage, like you're saying, it is it is just a beautiful place. So even if you're listening and you're not a Civil War aficionado and you're not super into the Civil War, it's just a beautiful place to visit. I mean, just, you, you, that, all, that alone, I mean, it's just this humongous preserved landscape of Absolutely. thousands of acres of protected land. But the cornfield itself, you know, what, what are the dimensions? How big was it? Who was the owner? And, and perhaps what did it look and feel like on the morning, that morning in 1862? Sure. Yeah, uh,
1: Miller's Cornfield was uh, a 24-acre lot uh, of corn in the middle of essentially a box surrounded by woods. So it's, it's open fields with woods on the east, the west, and the north side. Only to the south is it open as you head toward Sharpsburg. If you were there on the morning of the battle, if you walked north through the corn, and imagine yourself as you're walking along these furrows, surrounded by ripe corn, ready for uh, for harvesting, because that's the condition that it was at. We've all, or many of us, have walked through modern cornfields, and and this cornfield is a little different from that. Um, Cornfields were planted then in uh, not the high-density farming methods of today, where it's really packed very tightly. Uh, they needed space for each corn plant. There weren't the uh, the fertilizing methods that we have today, so each corn plant would be planted on a little hillock, a little mound of of, um, <clears throat> of earth that allowed the corn plant to to take root. Farmers planted them in essentially. Checkerboard patterns. So the rows in Miller's Cornfield ran north and south and then east and west. So um, making it easier for troops to march those two directions diagonally was possible, but difficult with uh, more difficult with the lines that uh, Civil War troops marched in. So each row has those hillocks, and that means that. Marching through them, the men are going to go up and down those hillocks or they're going to have to march down the roads to avoid uh, the confusion that would create. If you were in the center of Miller's cornfield the morning of the battle and you walked to the northern edge uh, and the, the cornfield is 500 yards wide, and 200 or 500 yards wide, east to west, uh, 250 yards long north to south. And it, if you walked through that field to the northern end, you would have looked across the open fields. That rolling terrain. Uh, there was uh, um, the, the first field was planted in, in grass or um, left fallow from uh, from harvesting the year before. The field beyond that, which would wouldn't have been able to see from the northern, northern end of the cornfield, uh, was a plowed field, and then that led to the north woods and then beyond that, the farm of Samuel Luma. And if you'd walked south through the cornfield, you'd have come to a fence that uh, that looked beyond a series of of grassy fields that led to the Smoketown Road, the Smoketown Road cutting diagonally across the landscape from east to west, heading directly for the small white Dunker Church, which is going to figure so prominently in the battle. Walking to the east of Miller's Cornfield brings you right to the edge of the East Woods, a thick woodlot full of boulders uh, and typical of, of these, these woods. People often ask, why are the woods there? Why didn't they plow them down? Uh, the short answer is obvious in the East Woods. It's full of huge rocks and boulders. Some Deposited there by nature, uh, some dumped there by uh, by the millers as they cleared their land or previous owners of the farm, uh, and those woodlots functioned as not only dumping grounds for those big boulders, uh, but they also functioned like barns for animals. Animals weren't kept in large structures like they are today. Uh, often they were left and, uh, to roam, and they were kept in these woodlots where they would eat grass and the trees would protect them for a bit. So, uh, so the Eastwood is very typical. Going to the west edge of the cornfield, would lead you to the edge of the Hagerstown Pike that ran north out of, of Sharpsburg, right through the uh, Cut the Millers Farm in about uh, about a third. Uh, across the road, of course, then is uh, is an open grassy field and the West Woods, which is going to hold the main Confederate line. The morning of the battle, it had uh, it had rained overnight. Uh, and it was, had been drizzly, but as the morning came, uh, the sun began to poke through, and so the ground was, was still damp, not soaked through and, and muddy, but, uh, but moist from that drizzly rain that had fallen overnight. So the plants were, uh, were covered in water and glistening in the, the rising sunlight as the, as the battle began.
0: So that really kind of paints. I was going to say that that kind of paints a picture of like what's happening there, and it, and it is interesting too, sort of from the preservation standpoint about how much of the cultural landscape that you're describing and how that impacted the battlefield. So and and how seeing that today and understanding that today, you know, going into the woods and seeing the stones, um, and how you know, which we're going to talk about maybe a little bit later, but how the preservation of that space even allows a greater understanding of it today because if that was all obliterated, you really wouldn't get a sense for like, I wonder why they left these in woods. I wonder why they didn't turn this into a cornfield. I mean, it really does kind of all play into each other. And so the ability to do good military history is in this case kind of dependent on a well-preserved cultural landscape too. I mean, it, it kind of plays together.
1: Absolutely. In, in fact, the, the Miller house that was photographed right after the battle uh, in 1862, um, it, it's, it's still there. Uh, and it, of course, was added to it was changed. But the the original foundations of the house, the house itself, uh, the core of that house that was built in 18, at least that was there by 1844, replacing an earlier structure, the preservation of the Miller Farm itself is critical to being able to understand how did this battle unfold? Um, I wish that the Miller's orchard and their garden fences that were described in the battle and became a huge obstacle or a defensive position for, uh, for troops both north and south fighting around the Miller farm, uh, those are gone. But still, you can get a sense for why this house is on top of a hill. Um, some of the outbuildings are still there. The barn, uh, or a barn is, is still there on the side of the original barn. So, Being able to see the Miller's farm today and look at those pictures, uh, again, in 1862, there's Margaret Miller and her children sitting
0: on the front porch. And Did they write out the battle in the house? Where were they?
1: No, they they had left and gone to uh, David Miller's uh, father lived nearby. In fact, uh, his father uh, was a prominent landowner and, uh, and veteran, uh, and he had a lot of. Uh, he was a prominent figure, so they went to his house and rode out the the battle. Um, they left the house alone. They returned briefly at the beginning of the battle. Uh, avoid. There's an incident described in the book uh, where a shell uh, clips a, a cord that holds a parrot cage or a, a bird cage hanging on their porch, and that's it. They, they flee after that. Um, so they weren't in the house, and, and surprisingly, the house survived largely intact in part because uh, the, the troops that were fighting there were mostly skirmishers. The, the heaviest fighting occurred farther to the south near the Dunker Church uh, and in the cornfield itself. So well, there was some damage to the house when you see that 1862 uh, photograph. There, there's really almost no damage at all to the structure itself.
0: So um, I know we're doing a lot of contextual work here, but in part, that's because we're hoping that people will hop on Amazon and purchase the book because it really does require a book length length treatment to really understand the action and, and sort of this melee back and forth. And, and you'll get a sense if you read the book why... Um, why it's taken so long, right? I mean, this is—it's a confusing action, and I think it's—it's it's easier for people just to say, "Well, it's this this maelstrom of death," and it's just sort of this whirlpool back and forth, and and so we won't be able to get into every level of detail. But the book is is a great is the place to get that. Um, I'm curious, though, for for context, uh, particularly for people who maybe who aren't familiar with this the the Civil War, or maybe just don't can't put Antietam in context. So we've talked about the landscape. We've talked about the look and feel and the, the landscape of the actual cornfield itself. Um, but kind of continuing along with that, why does Antietam matter? What, and, and what makes this morning clash significant? Why, why does, why, why is it worth, um, protecting this land? And, and why does this place, uh, hold such significance in our, in our national story, even to this day?
1: Yeah, Antietam is in many respects a a battle of what might have been. On the Confederate side, uh, Lee brings his army north into Maryland with with great hopes for this campaign, achieving finally what the Confederacy has been struggling for since the beginning uh, of the war. They want independence, and they're hoping that moving out of Virginia, going from the defensive. Uh, to the offense of carrying the campaign into the North, into a border state at least, but into the North and beyond defending their own homes, which um, is, is seen by the Europeans that they're trying to impress as, well, anybody can defend their home, but a viable state that is worth involving British troops and British treasure and fortune and French support to help um, succeed, it needs to prove itself as being something more than simply defending. So Lee's campaign is in part, uh, has multiple objectives, but a big part of that is persuading um, the Europeans to get involved in this fight and showing Northern governors that the best path for the union is to negotiate an end to the war. Just let the South go. They don't need to, to defeat uh, the Army of the Potomac and destroy it or capture it. Uh, that's fine. The goal is simply obtain independence. The Union is almost in the opposite position, where General Lee invades Maryland, having come from perhaps his greatest victory, certainly of the war to that date, the Second Battle of Manassas, uh, where he defeats... General Pope's Army, Union Army of Virginia drives it back to the very gates of Washington and opens the way to Lee's army to move north um, unopposed, the Federals are coming in, in a the opposite. They are coming out of that defeat of Second Manassas in terrible disarray. Uh, uh, George McClellan, Major General George McClellan, put back in charge uh, to almost nobody's relief. (laughs) He's kind of, well, he's the only man left. So he comes north and he has a lot to prove. He's got to uh, find Lee's army and his goal, his goal, not necessarily shared with Lincoln, they have different objectives, is to get the Confederates out of Maryland, free the north and go back to the way the war had been from, from the beginning, whatever McClellan's objective is, whether it's complete victory or a negotiated end to the fighting and just sort of restoring the status quo before the war, uh, that's his goal. So both armies come into Maryland with diametrically opposed objectives. They meet at Antietam because Jackson's capture of Harper's Ferry uh, reopens the campaign. Lee was on the verge of retreating back into Virginia and accepting failure. Jackson's capture, Stonewall Jackson's capture of, of Harpers Ferry reopens that. And it's Lee who will decide to stand on the ridges uh, surrounding Sharpsburg, Maryland, and, and stage that, that major battle. Uh, so as we come into the, the fighting there, uh, the Union Army after the, the victory at South Mountain, um, finds Lee not retreating, as McClellan may have uh, have hoped, believed and hoped, but ready to make a stand. And that's what makes the cornfield so critical is uh, Lee's stand and then where McClellan decides to launch his opening attack uh, late on 16 uh, September 1862 uh, opens the fight.
0: And so the the fighting starts... You know, very early in the morning, and and I think one of the interesting things for someone who's familiar with Antietam, and I'm curious, sort of, your take on all of this is, is how disjointed all the different actions are over the course of the day. Yeah, where you know you have, it it seems like the different commanders don't know what's going on um, with the other fights, and so how does it end and in, and in, you know, I mean, without getting into all the combat of happening, um, you know, how does it end and why does it end? I mean, what what kind of stops the fighting there?
1: Yeah. So the cornfield action really was critical because in the morning when that fighting began, uh, really at the crack of dawn, uh, General McClellan had decided on a, a three pronged attack. Lee's approach was simply defend. He was going to defend that position Uh, his line on the ridge. And then, hopefully late in the day, once he had let McClellan batter his army against his defensive position and had worn them down, uh, then he would go on the offensive. McClellan's plan was to attack. He knew that Washington expected uh, an attack, expected a victory. And so his plan was a three-pronged attack. His opening attack what makes the cornfield so important, is on the Union right, the Confederate left. And that's the, um, the opening action that, that comes to the cornfield. Once they have achieved his objective there, which is to get up on, by the Dunker Church to break the Confederate position on the right, at the same time, Ambrose Burnside and the Union Ninth Corps are going to launch an attack against the Confederate right from the Union left across the famous Burnside Bridge, the Rohrbach Bridge. Uh, And once those two flank attacks have occurred and Lee has thinned his force to defend the flanks, then an attack up the center is going to come, led by... The Fifth Corps, under McClellan's uh, friend, Fitzjohn Porter, is going to save Porter's reputation, which had been damaged at uh, at Second Manassas, and he's actually under charges. that General Pope has has charged him with uh, a series of uh, military charges, and so he has that over his head. And McClellan's going to let Porter in the Fifth Corps, including the U.S. regulars, the West Pointer, so the division of, uh, of regulars is the most dependable, the most solid fighters. They're going to launch against this weakened center, break Lee's line, and hopefully end the war uh, with surrender of the Army of Northern Virginia. It's that opening action that makes the cornfield so important. Um, the opening attacks at dawn, the cornfield wasn't supposed to figure it all. It was supposed to simply be a uh, ground over which the Union Army would march to attack the Confederate position by the Dunker Church. Uh, Joe Hooker, who was given uh, authority by General McClellan to plan and execute that Union attack on, on the right, uh, chose the Dunker Church as the objective. Everybody could see it. If you got confused in the battle, you just had to look around, and there's this little white church starkly standing out there, uh, and that's where you're supposed to be attacking for. So it, it was a good, good move on Hooker's part, um, but it, it was uh, Jackson then who put his troops south of the cornfield and made Hooker fight to control that intermediate objective that he it took him considerable time to realize that he should have controlled that ground from the start his failure to push forward to use artillery to clear the cornfield and to control the intermediate ground between the east woods and the west woods where the confederate line was that's what caused the uh, the failure uh, and a lot of the
0: back and forth fighting throughout the morning I mean and 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 to that point though about the disjointed nature because w- you you describe really well obviously you've done this a few times uh the the three pieces of fighting but did those commanders did, did Burnside did Fitz John Porter did um uh, did, did uh Sumner I guess did they know about each other's actions and were they coordinated in any way
1: So the short answer is no uh we don't think so. The only general we know knew about the full uh, elements of McClellan's plan was Hooker. Uh, Joe Hooker was told about the other flanking attacks and the timing. Uh, we don't know that McClellan told. Now, he might have shared that with Porter. He might have shared it with Burnside. They certainly all interacted throughout the day. Porter, in particular, was. Um, was at McClellan's headquarters or forward headquarters at the Pry House uh, throughout the, the uh, most of the battle. So it's entirely possible that he did tell them, but we don't know. Hooker's the only one who described uh, this three-part plan uh, that McClellan clearly had. And McClellan clouds this by writing another um, official record of the battle, uh, in 1863, that essentially laid it out as if. Oh, my plan was to do exactly what happened. Right. Uh, so, yeah, that that's one of the problems. So I, I think it's it's pretty clear that McClellan, because he was controlling the timing of the attacks, and the the sense of commanders in that era was that the general commanding needed to think strategically. Other generals really just needed to know enough to do their job, and I, so I, I think McClellan, being that very West Point, very uh, patrician sort of general who had a uh, a grand view of himself, we know from the letters that his wife, thank goodness, Mary Mary Ellen McClellan kept those. Uh, uh kept those letters. Yeah, exactly. uh, they're a great gift to us. I'm sure he uh, remains unhappy about that. Uh, but we know from uh, McClellan's sense that he was sort of a, um, you know, he was the elite leader. He didn't need to share these details. And that was what West Point taught. You know, you don't want people thinking too much. You just want commanders to do what you want them to do. Uh, so there's no indication that any of the other generals had a sense for anything other than their part of the battle. Uh, and- Except Hooker, who did know about these other portions.
0: Well, and what I was also going to mention, too, is that, you know, what I think is interesting to pick up on for something from before, which is you talked about doing staff rides here and how that's sort of what sparked some of this. And for those people who aren't familiar, who are listening, you know, staff ride is a, is a military way of visiting a battlefield and sort of understanding and dissecting leadership decisions and using the lessons of what occurred there to sort of inform leadership and leadership development in the in the present um and you know to the point about um you know not just expecting people to do you know their work without really knowing the the bigger picture and some some of these poor leadership decisions um which may have been enforced by or or the result of training at West Point. But I mean, those decisions, that is something to take from this and sort of a a significant lesson that can be even applied to the modern day, uh, which is, you know, I think there's some good things about George B. McClellan. There's some bad things about him. But I think that that in particular is probably not one of his finer traits as a leader.
1: Yeah, it, absolutely. And on the Confederate side, we don't really know um, a, a lot about the, the interaction. Uh, we know that Lee's plan was defensive and that he eventually tried to go on the offensive. Uh, it, it's pretty clear from their actions that both Longstreet and Jackson, who were the wing commanders at that point, understood that that was Lee's plan. Uh, Remain on the defensive, and then when he's ready to go, he'll tell you. Because there were opportunities where Jackson, uh, in particular, in the morning in the cornfield, might have pushed his advantage farther forward, and yet he didn't. Um, His Confederate attacks, just like the Federal side, tended to be small actions that had limited scope. So they'd advance, take the cornfield, but then there was no follow-up. So, for right. example, a Hood's division takes the cornfield and then there's no real support for them. Another division pushing forward might have taken that ground. But, and again, we don't know, but the supposition is that Jackson knew Lee wasn't ready to go on the offensive. So those counterattacks needed to be of limited scope until General Lee was, was ready to act.
0: And how much of that, how much of that and and Lee's nature in the battle do you think is, is a result of the fact that he has his back to the Potomac, that just a few miles behind him is a very difficult thing, a very difficult obstacle to, to surmount and that if he's too risky, if he's too audacious um, he, he could, he could lose the army without, without an ability to retreat. Is that a big component of that? Do we know
1: I I think that's exactly right. I I think that's um, Lee is rolling the dice simply by being there. And he knows it. He knows that they're really only, uh, by the time the battle starts, they only have two options to get out of that ground. The Hagerstown route is essentially cut off, it's still open, but um, the the Federals occupy the, the North Woods and uh, that ground. And, and so getting to Hagerstown is an unlikely escape route. Um, obviously, the route to Shepherdstown behind them directly to the west is wide open. The route to, uh, uh, to Harpers Ferry to the south remains open, but that's vulnerable too. And of course, that's part of what Burnside is trying to do in the, uh, in the afternoon as he attacks uh, the Confederate right is to get up on that Harpers Ferry Road and cut off one of the remaining two avenues of, of retreat. So Lee is taking a huge gamble by by being here at all, and I think uh, he certainly knew that. And his cautious approach to uh, to the unfolding of the battle, I think, reflects that sense that you know I'm taking a lot of chances. Even Robert E. Lee, who was the master of you know bluffing and turning a, um, a a pair of twos into uh, a full house and a poker game knew that, you know, I can't push my luck too far.
0: Right. So, um, we, we could, we could talk all day about this, but we can't. Um, but, uh, if you want to learn more and, and this conversation is interesting, you obviously the book is called, uh, the cornfield Antietam's bloody turning point. The author is David Welker, who we're speaking with right now. Um, You know, given that you you wrote about Ox Hill, which we don't have time to talk about, but is is an important battlefield, but is to some extent largely unknown, I think, in part because it's been largely lost to development. There's very little of it left um, sitting where it sits in, in Chantilly in Northern Virginia. Did the did the preservation of Antietam make your research effort any different when it came to Antietam versus Ox Hill?
1: Absolutely, the ability to walk over those small rises in the ground uh, changed my analysis of the actions and to and helped me understand commanders' objectives. You know, why did a commander stop? Why did Meade stop his division in its advance at a particular point? Well, because he was in this uh, in this trough of ground, which if it was covered with homes. Would probably have been bulldozed, and you wouldn't have known the difference. As it was, as I walked that ground in doing my research, I thought a whole division could hide down here. Meade stopped here because it gave his men protection, as he considered what to do once they engaged in in battle, once they restarted their advance. I couldn't do that with my book on Chantilly. Uh, you c- simply can't walk the ground. Route sixty six. Cuts off the advance. If you follow Stevens' uh, advance up to the, the fighting, you can't do it. You can't walk across your 66. You'd have to walk through the Fairfax County Fire Training Academy, through businesses, now through a housing development. Um, and so it's just impossible to get that sense personally. And in Antietam, it's the opposite. I could walk that ground. I could stand there and look from side to side and get a sense for the scope of this battle. And it's really preservation that undergirds a lot of the analysis that I was was able to do in in merging terrain and understanding commanders' objectives and matching that with what they wrote.
0: Right. Yeah, and you know it's interesting. I mean, for people listening who may not be familiar, and we've talked to um, Dennis Fry and Tom Clemens uh, previously, but you know, there, uh, the cornfield was not without development pressure and threat. In the late '80s, there was a plan to build condo or uh, not condos, but um, row homes. Um, there was a townhome yeah. development plan for the cornfield, and and that pretty much all would have been lost, and certainly the context of all of this would have been lost. So, um, those pitched battles of the 20th century and 21st century to save this landscape, um, you know, to, to this day that that land still speaks to us in in ways that you've been able to hear, which is pretty cool. It sort of gives credence to that fight and 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 value to the work that was done to protect that ground.
1: And I think Chantilly's loss, in many respects, the the preservation uh, that was undertaken at at Antietam and in all the other battles, and that in the end it is part of Chantilly's legacy. And I write about that in the, the book. That uh, it may have been lost in a bit to history, but it continues to resonate today because of that. And I remember the uh, you know the Third Battle of Manassas when. The, the pitched efforts to stop the, uh, uh, the mall and the housing complex at Manassas. I took part in the, the ghost march that um, it was staged for the media to show the importance of, of preservation. Uh, that really kicked off the, the beginning of this, and I'm, I'm honored to have been a small part of those preservation efforts.
0: So, speaking of history preservation, the cornfield, Antietam. What's the what's the next project on the horizon? Anything that you're planning?
1: Uh, oh, absolutely. So, um, I'm writing. Uh, you know, I write articles here and there. I'm hoping to take some of the material that didn't make it into the book. Uh, that uh, you know, a chapter in particular that was cut out, turn that into a, a magazine article to uh continue to to share the story of the Battle of Antietam. Um, I had some other, I just published a history of the uh, the ironclad USS Choctaw. Uh, I had an ancestor who served there, uh, just as I like had an ancestor who was was in the cornfield, who was wounded in the, the cornfield in 105th New York. So uh, kind of merging my ancestors' experiences and, and sparking interest in in projects. I'm also beginning work on um, research that I hope will lead to a book on the Invalid Corps, uh, the Union Invalid Corps that was, uh, that was largely overlooked and had a major contribution to, uh, to the outcome of the war.
0: So, yeah, and an important part of American disability history that is completely overlooked or often just forgotten.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Um, and, uh, well, these are all great titles that we're looking forward to. Before we let you go, uh, and this has been a really fascinating conversation, the book, again, is The Cornfield Antietam's Bloody Turning Point. The author is David Welker. You can pick it up on Amazon. Or, David, do you have another site where people can reach you or find out more about your books?
1: Yeah, so uh, my uh, website, David A. Welker, uh, Civil War Historian, it... Uh, is um, if you just Google my name online in Civil War, it'll it'll bring that up, uh, and I have links to articles and books. Uh, I also have a uh, a blog that I do on the Cornfield, where I take stories in the book and expand them. So I'll have the opportunity to take a uh, a soldier story or a regiment's history uh, and build out what brought them to the Cornfield and then what happened afterwards. So yep. I can.
0: I was going to say that sounds like it could be a book unto itself.: Faces yeah. of the cornfield.: um, yeah, it, 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 yeah, it just uh, it's, it's fertile ground, and that's my first cornfield uh, joke of the, <laughs> so. yeah, that's
1: pretty you made it this far without a, a farming pond. that's good.
0: Yeah. So uh, most difficult question pretty much for anybody who comes on this this podcast, which is, what's your favorite historic place or historic site before we let you go?
1: Yeah, uh, gosh, there are so many of them, of course. Um, Antietam is certainly my favorite field in the East. It's the best preserved. It's the most like that ground that the men fought on. And, you know, if you'd been transported from uh, days before the battle, before the fighting started, to, uh, to that time, you, you would uh, see similarities. So, for that reason, I absolutely love. Uh, Antietam. It, it is a national treasure. Um, I live not f- too many miles from, from the Manassas battlefield, so I think that's probably my my second favorite. We, um, you know, brought up my kids learning to identify cannon uh, <laughs> at Manassas and hiking all the different trails. And uh, uh, I recently discovered an ancestor who fought at First Manassas and several at, at Second Manassas. So um, th- those also. Uh, um, Manassas Battlefield, uh, another favorite of mine.
0: Yeah, important places in Manassas too. We could talk all about that, but is a sort of an oasis um, for Northern Virginia as well. I mean, it's a, it's a battlefield. It's significant, but boy, it's a it's a big green spot and a big green space. And you know, in these times when we need to get out, it's a these places can be important. Um, I think we're all getting a sense for how important open space is right now.
1: And in this lockdown time, that's been our our walking place. My wife and I go out there as frequently as we can to get away from the house and get some fresh air. And uh, you know, she puts up with my Civil War obsession, so uh, so she's been very supportive throughout this project. But being able to walk there, and you know, some of the trails are heavily uh, populated, but we know many that people just aren't aware of so we can go back and get in the woods and uh, and enjoy a walk in, in peace and quiet and <laughs> without getting exposed to covid
0: exactly well um hope you uh do well over these coming months uh with all of that but also hope you spend some time writing uh because we're looking forward to, to reading more of, of uh what comes, comes from you and from your mind and from the research that you're doing. And it's been a pleasure to talk with you today here on PreserveCast. Thanks so much for joining us.
1: Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to PreserveCast. To dig deeper into this episode's show, notes and all previous episodes, visit PreserveCast.org. You can also find us online at Facebook and Twitter at PreserveCast. This program was supported by the Historic Preservation Education Foundation. PreserveCast is produced by Preservation Maryland in Baltimore City. Thanks again for your support, and remember to
0: keep preserving.